This morning we return to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, so if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to meet me there. Um, we encourage you to bring your Bibles. We're in it every single week, and we're going to study it every week in depth. And uh, I, I want you to follow along as we study to see that this is true and this is from God's Word. Um, if you don't have a Bible uh, with you, you are more than welcome to use one of the black Bibles in front of you. The passage, if you need help finding it, can be found on page 912. I'm going to read from verse 11, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. And once again, I'd encourage you to follow along as I read. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 11 through 21. I've been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what you were, uh, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Let's pray. And Father, we give you the glory now for how you have revealed yourself to us, and that everything uh, we need to know about you can be found within the pages of Scripture. It's often been said that the preaching of your word is like participating in a family meal. And now as we gather around the table with the food that has been prepared for our time together, be edifying to us and build us in spiritual maturity for your glory. By the power of your spirit, would we become more Christ-like through what you have to say to us in the text today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We've been in flight for some time in 2 Corinthians. And as we come to the second half of chapter 12, there is a noticeable shift in the letter, if you've been following along with us as we come to the home stretch. Uh, we are entering into the descent of the letter and we are coming in for the landing. Now, if you were literally a passenger flying on an airplane, this is the point in the letter where the pilot or the flight attendant would come in over the intercom 
and say something to the effect of, uh, ladies and gentlemen, as we begin our descent, please make sure your seat backs and tray tables are up in the full upright position. Make sure that your seat belt is f- securely fastened and all carry-on luggage is stowed away underneath the seat or in front of you or in the overhead compartments. Um, if you've been on a plane, you've heard those words and you know that there's always necessary preparations that must be taken to land the plane. And it's no different in our time in Second Corinthians. In order to understand and appreciate what is written in these final 25 verses that we will look at over the course of the next three weeks, uh, we need to make some necessary preparations surrounding our understanding specifically of the local church and its purpose and its function. These verses actually will not make sense unless we know what the local church is and what the local church is not. And so I'd like to briefly spend some time speaking to that. And please know that there is much more to be said about the local church, uh, about the topic. And one of these days we'll preach an entire series on it and give it its due. But for now, we're going to do what we can just to set up the end of uh, Second Corinthians. Uh, many of us, in 21st century America, have a very weak view of the doctrine of the local church uh, and picture it as something that it's not. One author actually has written that if you are a Christian living in Western democracy, chances are that you need to change the way that you think about the church and how you are connected to it. And he goes on to write that you misshape it your understanding of the local church, that we misshape it in a way that misshapes our Christianity. Uh, Many people make the assumption that the local church is some kind of club or organization where its members merely carry a shared interest. And the reason that we gather is because of that shared interest. That the very core of the gathering is because you and I have the interest in the same thing. Uh, You have an interest in God and I have an interest in in God. And so that's why we gather, right? Just as uh, I would join a quilt club because I love quilting so much. uh, Or if I join the Italian club because I am an Italian, I join the church because I have a shared interest in talking about God. And one of the best features of joining a club is that it's completely voluntary. That that I get to determine my involvement in the club and how involved I am in the club. It's merely optional. But you see, while believers within the local church do have indeed shared interests, the local church is not a club. And many people make the assumption that the local church is a service provider. Perhaps, right? That if I am in need of a particular service, I can join and uh, I can join a church that specifically fits that need. I can attend a church service, if you will, at 9.30 a.m. every Sunday to get serviced. I I fill up the spiritual tank. I I tune up my spirituality in the 60 minutes that I'm here. And and then I'll be set for the rest of the week until I return next week or, you know, maybe a couple weeks uh, before the tank is empty. I join the church because I have a spiritual need and the church is what provides for those spiritual needs. And one of the best uh, features of coming to the church as a service provider is that I am a customer, 
and I carry all the authority. I get to call the shots and I get to determine what I need and what I don't need uh, done. And I get to decide what needs to be serviced and what doesn't need to be serviced. But while believers within the local church are, are serviced in a sense, the local church is not a service provider. Those are two examples, popular examples of the way that some people view the church that um, Jonathan Lehman actually gives. He's a pastor author, uh, and he gives those examples that uh, people often view the church in that way in his book on church membership. And he goes on to explain that there are actually symptoms of thinking wrongly about the church. There are things that we can point to that, that point to a greater disease. And just to name a few symptoms, um, it's symptoms like Christians who believe that the church is just something that you do on Sunday and has no bearing on your life Monday through Friday. Or a symptom that, that is a Christian who assumes that they can make a perpetual habit out of being absent from gatherings for a long period of time. Or a symptom like Christians who don't realize that they are partly responsible for both the spiritual welfare and the physical livelihood of other believers in their church. Uh, Lehman lists many, many more symptoms that we don't have time to explore, but he does go on to write that the basic disease behind all of these symptoms is the assumption that we have the authority individually to conduct our Christian lives on our own. And we will always assume that until we have a proper understanding of the local church. What is the local church then? If it's not a club and it's not a service provider, then what it is? What, what is it that we're doing here? Once again, I turn to Lehman for help. He offers up a definition. He writes that a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Let me read it again. A local church is a group of Christians. It starts there. A group of Christians. Mind you, the definition, it does speak to the gathering of believers, but it doesn't simply start with the gathering, but as a group of believers, right? We, we are still the local church collectively when we leave this place. This right now, what we're experiencing is the local church gathered. And when we leave, we will still be the local church, but we will be the local church scattered. For, for those of you, especially specifically for those of you who are members, we do not cease to be FAC when we leave. And so it's important to see that First Alliance Church is not a place you attend. It's actually, it's not something that you go to. It's something that you are. You are a part of a body, right? So once again, the local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Furthermore, with this definition, you see that the, the church is, is uh, not a group of people that start with a common interest. And it's not a group of people that start with a common need. No, the church is a group of people who have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. They have been redeemed and they have been adopted into God's family. 
And Jesus, as Jesus has gathered his church universally, as he's collecting his people, uh, his kingdom, if you will, under his supreme rule, he has actually bestowed a spiritual authority to the local church as an entity, as a whole, as one body. From a biblical perspective, the local church as a body of believers is the authority on earth that Jesus himself has instituted to officially affirm and give shape to my own Christian life. And so we ought not look at the church like a business of which I am a patron, but rather as a family of which I am a member which is the point that Paul is actually making in these closing passages. You see, the Corinthian church was not much different than us in their mindset regarding the local church. They, they struggled to understand who they were, and they struggled to understand specifically who Paul was, what Paul's role in the life of their church. And much of their hardship came about because they tried to pay Paul for his services, as a patron would, and Paul wouldn't take their money. And, and Paul tells them in this letter that he's returning to them for a third visit, and, and he is going to continue this practice of not burdening them. That, that is what Paul has said throughout the letter. I'm not going to burden you, which is code for, I'm not going to take your money. I'm not going to accept your support. Now, now, this is not new information to us. We addressed this back in chapter 11. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to uh, that message if you want further clarification for what exactly is happening there. But I'm going to recap the situation briefly. Uh, much like today, in those times, it was completely and perfectly reasonable and acceptable for professional public speakers and leaders to charge a fee for, for teaching and for speaking engagements. And even back in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul writes that he has a right to earn money based on his preaching. And he offers several uh, points of support to that end. Uh, and we even see in verse 13 of our passage that Paul did accept support from other churches. But several times in his letters to the Corinthians, Paul rejects their support. And this annoyed the Corinthians. Great, like they didn't like this. They were actually greatly offended by this. It was this, this area of contention between the Corinthians and Paul. And part of this is because the culture was at play here. The culture of the city of Corinth played into this because Corinth was a city of pride. And it was a city of materialism. And it was a city of self-confidence. Even now we can understand the sense of pride in one's ability to pay for something themselves. I don't, I can do this. I can pay for this. I'll, I'll pay for this. And so Paul rejecting their support proved to be a point of contention. Yet it revealed the hearts of the Corinthian church. This is why Paul accepts support from other churches, because other churches, their hearts are in the right proper place when it comes to their relationship with Paul. They understand completely what's going on, but the Corinthians don't view Paul as they should. And so Paul is actually using the practice of rejecting their support as an object lesson of sorts to instruct them and to teach them about what a proper relationship between him and the church is. 
You see, the Corinthians viewed uh, themselves as patrons of Paul, that he was a service provider and that they were his clientele. They, They viewed their relationship with Paul as transactional. You give us what we want and then we will give you what you want. And as long as that happens, this will be a very good profitable partnership for the both of us. Yet Paul makes it very clear in verse 14 that he doesn't want their money. Right? What does he say? Take a, take a look at it. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. Why? For I seek not what is yours, but you. Paul says, I don't want your money. I don't want your stuff. I don't want what you can give me. I want you. As people, I, I want your hearts. I want your souls. Paul has no interest in benefiting financially from the Corinthians. He wants the Corinthians themselves. And the reason this is the case is because Paul doesn't view the Corinthians as patrons, as clients. He views them as children. And we know that to be true because that's the illustration that Paul uses uh, at the end of verse 14. Take a look at it. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. You see, in Paul's day, the father in particular was obligated to provide support for his young children. And and the idea of of saving up or storing up for their children, it was more than just providing for them financially, right? It's the idea of intentionally setting aside money for a specific purpose for their child. Much like one would do today with a savings account. The purpose of this action was really to set your child up for a future. And it would be absurd, Paul makes the point, to expect young children to do this for their parents. That's backwards. That's out of whack. So Paul says, in the natural order of life, you do not provide me support, but I provide you support. Paul is not dependent on the Corinthians as a client. Instead, they are dependent on Paul as a child is dependent on their father. Paul is not a service provider to the Corinthians. He is their spiritual father. This is not patronage. This is parentage. And that changes things within the context of the local church. Patronage, once again, is transactional, whereas ministry is relational. The bond of patronage is driven and secured by my own needs and my own desires and what I am willing to give in exchange for something that I get in return. And that is a very weak bond. And it's easily broken. Because as soon as I determine that what I am putting into the relationship is not worth what I am getting out of the relationship, the ties are severed. And how often do we see this in the context of the local church? Where someone says, well, I just am not getting what I need to get out of this. And so I'm out. It happens all the time. The the bond of parentage, however, The bond of family, how it was originally designed, is is driven and secured not by my own needs and desires, but the needs and desires of others. It's driven by what I'm willing to give and lay down 
not for my own welfare, but the welfare of others, the welfare of my family, the welfare of children. The bond of parentage is driven by the notion that I love my children so much that I am willing to support them for their own good despite how much it costs me. Because let's be real, if there's anybody here who has raised children, I do not need to convince you that children are expensive. They, they are costly. And it would be quite ignorant as a father to expect my young children to give me just as much as I have given them. You see, not only do I not expect them to, but they really couldn't, even if they tried. Because they're ignorant, right? Innocence of children. They, they don't know. My kids don't even have a clue about how expensive they are. They have no concept of expense. For example, just out of curiosity this past week, I asked my seven-year-old son, Jacob, Jacob, how much do you think our house costs? And he paused for a moment and he thought, pondered the question. And then he said, Dad, it's got to be more than $300. Now, to be fair, he was right. It is more than $300. In a family relationship, in a father-to-child relationship, since the relationship is not based on what I can get out of it, the bond of parentage is much stronger and not easily broken. And so in the local church, we actually need to reject the notion of patronage Because that is not the type of relationship that we have and it's not the type of relationship that the Corinthians had with Paul. No, we are bonded and unified by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, by the giving of himself. And when Christ draws you to himself, he also simultaneously draws you not into a business relationship, but into his family. You are not brought into a relationship with Jesus without also being brought into a relationship with his people, with the church. And that is expressed in the local church. The two go hand in hand by God's design. And so since the Corinthians are not Paul's patrons, but instead his children, this changes things. This changes the interactions between Paul and the Corinthians. As a spiritual father, Paul's uh, motivation in uh, his interactions with the Corinthians is different than the motivation of other false teachers in the church that did view the Corinthians as clients. Right? There are certain qualities, if you will, that materialize as a result of Paul being their spiritual father. And I see uh, this take shape actually four different ways throughout our passage. We'll walk through these briefly together. Um, first, in verse 15, we see that Paul is sacrificial towards the Corinthians. He's sacrificial. We've already touched on this somewhat, but if there was any question in our mind, Paul makes it clear that he will most gladly, his words, spend and be spent for the souls of the Corinthians. When Paul writes that he will spend and be spent, he's using two different verbs that are a play on words. A similar idea that we would get as commentators write is we could say that Paul spends and expends. 
is the idea. The, the first verb, to spend, it means literally to spend money or to spend resources on something. And the second verb, to be spent, it, it means actually to exhaust, to, to wear out. And so Paul is saying, as a father, I, I will not only use my resources to support you, but I am going to pour out myself to you. I not only give you my stuff, I not only give you my resources, but I give you myself. Just as I seek not what is yours, but you, I give you all of me. Paul says, I give you my time. I give you my energy. I give you my affection. I give you my effort. And this is on your behalf, he says, for your souls, for your well-being, not my own well-being, If I was out for my own well-being, I wouldn't be in this business, Paul says. No, but this is for you. This is for your well-being. Whereas businesses are most interested in their own well-being, parents care about their children's well-being. And and Paul says that he does this gladly, meaning that he does it with pleasure. This is a pleasure for him. He, He loves the Corinthians in such a way that it's not a burden for Paul to spend and be spent. And this right here is the standard for all true ministry, right? That we are willing and gladly, that we willingly and gladly spend and be spent for the, uh, for the sake of others because that was what was modeled to us by Jesus in his life and at the cross, right? We're, we're reminded from the gospel accounts of Jesus's life that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the cross, the cross is the epitome of what it means to spend and be spent. And it is the cross that Paul models his ministry after. This is one of the ways that Paul's parentage is displayed, the fact that he is sacrificial towards the the Corinthians. A second way that Paul's parentage is evidenced is in the passage is that he is an advocate of truth. He is an advocate of the truth. After Paul explains that he will gladly spend and be spent for the sake of the Corinthians, he draws attention to the fact that there is this illogical love loss between the two of them. Right? You would think that the Corinthians would have a great love for Paul because of Paul's many, many sacrifices, but this is not the case at the end of verse 15. Right? Paul, Paul loves the Corinthians, but that same kind of love does not seem to be reciprocated. And so why is this so? What is standing in the way? From verse 16, we get the indication that the rumor mill is running hot, that it's alive and well. Right? Paul writes in verse 16, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, as you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Once again, we've already touched on this in a previous message, but while Paul did not accept support from the Corinthians, he was heading up another collection, uh, another um, collection of financial support intended to help those in Jerusalem specifically who had fallen on hard times. And there were some who accused Paul of being a con man, that this was all a ruse, that he was crafty, uh, and this was just all a deceptive ploy, right? That in not receiving support from them, he was merely putting on a front as a man of integrity, 
so that they would give more to the Jerusalem collection and then Paul would just skim off the top of the Jerusalem collection and line his own pockets. They, they made baseless assumptions about Paul which grew and developed into outright lies. Unfortunately, I've discovered that the, the local church is just riddled with assumptions. That assumptions often run rampant and breed seeds of division. And we must remember from an individual perspective that, that we have a very limited perspective, that we have a very limited scope on what things are and how they really are. And we have to understand that our assumptions over particular situations within the church or our assumptions over particular people about particular people are absolutely damaging. And it would do us well to ask the question, what do I know to be true in this situation? And if you answer that, you stick to that. What do I know to be true? And then you leave it right there. Right? Paul uh, actually is doing this, right? What is true in the situation? What do I know to be true rather than just assuming? We need to be a champion. We need to champion truth, which is why Paul asks these rhetorical questions in verse 17. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? Did Titus take advantage of you? Did, did we act not in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Paul is challenging them. What is true in the situation? What have you seen with your own eyes that, that, that is true? You see, Paul had taken extreme measures to ensure the integrity of the collection by actually sending others in his place to take up the collection so that he himself would not have to handle any funds. And he brings up those efforts. And while the questions are indeed rhetorical in this context, the expected answer is, well, no. None of them took advantage of us. And to Paul's point, the truth speaks for itself. And as a spiritual father, Paul champions the truth. And he shines a spotlight on deceit. He calls it out. That's a, another way that his parentage is evidenced here. A third way that Paul's parentage is evidenced in the passage is that he seeks up to, to build up Christians, uh, build up the Corinthians by proclaiming the truths of Christ. He's not just an advocate of general truth within the congregation. He's an advocate of the truth that will build up. And this is in verse 19 where he writes, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Paul has just spent the last three chapters of the letter to defend his role as an apostle. But here Paul makes it clear that he's not the one on trial as if the Corinthians are the jury who decide the validity of Paul. No, in his defense, Paul speaks as one in Christ in the sight of God and God is the one who is the judge. Paul doesn't even really care about the Corinthians, what he looks like to the Corinthians. He doesn't care what they say about him or what they think about them because he's not here to impress them. He stands before God. Paul is not trying to clear his name or defend his activity in ministry or justify himself as the spiritual father of Corinthians. Paul says, no, all of this that I have said that may appear like a defense of my ministry, I'm just trying to proclaim and reveal the truths of Christ to you. And he does this to build them up. 
saying everything I do and say is for your good, to, to build up, to strengthen. It's actually one of Paul's favorite terms for church growth throughout all of his letters uh, when he's talking about spiritual maturity. The picture that we get is that of a building that's in, still under construction. And Paul's activity in the lives of the Corinthians was, was to see the building strengthened or the building uh, built higher. And just like a father to my own children, I want to see them grow, not just physically, but spiritually. I want to, them to come to a place of spiritual maturity. I don't want to tear them down. I want to build them up. I want them to know and see and hear and taste the goodness of God's word and his glory. And this is how Paul feels about the Corinthian church. And so in defending himself, Paul is not seeking, once again, the approval of the Corinthians, but fighting to strengthen their faith. Everything he does is for constructive purposes, not destructive purposes, including calling the Corinthians out on their sin. Right, this is an uncomfortable uh, part where Paul talks about his third visit. And this fits, brings us nicely to this fourth evidence that we see of Paul's, of Paul's parentage. It may appear that Paul is trying to tear them down, but Paul says, no, indeed, I'm trying to build you up. But, but that is part of, 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 of calling you out on, on, on your wrongdoing, Paul says. But Paul is not willing to let the Corinthians settle into their sin. And so on his third visit, he's going to come and he's going to aggressively, aggressively address it as a parent corrects a child so that they may grow in maturity. Paul, as their spiritual father, will correct the Corinthians where they need to be corrected because he loves them. Paul is aware that sin is destructive. Sin tears down. And so if Paul's goal is to strengthen and build up, he must address the things that are ripping them down. Things specifically that he lists like quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder, impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality. Those are all ingredients for disaster and chaos in the local church. You see, the health of the local church is dependent on leaders who will not flatter me, but who will correct me, who will correct me and change my course and point me in the right direction. And so Paul is going to address it if those things are still present at his third visit. And this is not something that he looks forward to. This is a painful experience. In verse 21, Paul says he will mourn over those who have sinned and not repented. We see here that Paul does not relish this. He does not have a spirit of revenge. He's not out simply trying to get back at those who rebelled against his authority. It's not as if he has a chip on his shoulder. No, he is sad for them, actually. This is an occasion for mourning because he cares, because he's a loving father. If this was merely a business relationship, it wouldn't matter. Paul wouldn't care what the Corinthians did as long as he still got paid. But once again, this is not patronage. It's parentage. My involvement within the biblical local church 
means that I am inviting you into the mess of my life. And you are inviting me into the mess of your life. And when you look at that from a high vantage point, and you look down at the local church, not as a club, not as a service provider, but as a family, you look down and you say, that is a lot of mess. This, what we do here, is messy. Ministry is messy, but it's good because it's for our upbuilding. And the local church is the very thing that Jesus himself uses and has instituted to upbuild people. It's a messy thing. It's a messy work. It's so messy that Jesus laid down his life for our sin. He didn't handle this in a clean manner. He poured out his blood and submitted to death so that we could experience life. That's messy. Through his death and resurrection, he broke the chains and bondage of our sin. And he has called his people, his family, to obedience. That's messy. But it's beautiful. And he has called us to follow him, not just individually, but corporately, together, as one body. Once again, the local church is a messy place. But boy, is it beautiful when it comes together as a family and functions under the authority and guidance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, we uh, depend on you and your spirit and and Jesus for um, how we conduct uh, what we do here, Father. would we recognize, Lord, that our involvement here is that of a family? Um, and there are some pretty hard truths that come, come through, Father, when we consider such things. We thank you for the local church, Father. You, in your scripture, call the church, the universal church, the bride of Christ, Lord. And there have been many people that have been burned by the bride of Christ, Father. But if uh, we know that the bride is a beautiful, beautiful bride. And, and that the church is important and that you have called her to yourself and there will be a day that she will be blemish-free and presented to the bridegroom in Jesus Christ when he returns. And we eagerly await that day. But until that day, Father, would by your spirit, uh, we long to glorify you together, not just on Sundays, but through every day of the week and every waking moment, Father. Would, would, would we be willing to come alongside each other uh, and, and, and glorify you together as one. And in your holy name I pray, amen.